Hello and welcome to the Society of Petroleum Engineers Gulf Coast Section podcast. The section was founded in 1935 and now has over 11,000 members. It is a volunteer organization that provides member forums to upgrade and maintain professional competency. You can find more about the ongoing initiatives, webinars, events, and other member resources at spegcs.org. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the SPE Gulf Coast Section podcast. I'm Michael Gaines and excited that you're joining us today for another episode of our podcast. Uh, In today's conversation, we are going to uh, pick up on a theme that we uh, covered recently, talking about some of the uh, synergies and uh, where the intersection of the uh, tech industry and oil and gas uh, come together. And uh, in our conversation, we're actually going to be talking about some elements that are occurring in, uh, in spaces uh, such as high-performance computing, uh, some reservoir simulations, seismic processing, and how all of that has come to be. And our expert today is uh, joining us from Houston. We have Ray Gomez. He is the Energy Partner Ecosystem Manager uh, at NVIDIA. So, Ray, thanks for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. All right. So uh, before we we dive in, would love to get a little bit of your background, Ray. Uh, I know that uh, you are coming to the table uh, fully fully stocked and the right guy for the the role, especially for this conversation. So if you would mind, uh, maybe just give our our audience a little bit of background on yourself. Yeah, happy to do so. Um, so I got my undergrad from the University of Texas at Austin in nuclear physics, and I graduated in 2013. At the end of 2013. Unfortunately, nobody told me when I was studying that that you can't really get a job as a, yeah. <laughs> at the undergrad level in nuclear physics. And I was in just way too much student debt for go, to go on to that PhD. Yeah. Um, but if you remember, at the end of 2013, beginning of 2014, it was a very different market. Oil and gas was booming. And luckily, Schlumberger was handing out offers to just about anybody with a physics background. So I, I joined Schlumberger Western GECO, was a geophysicist, began with them at the beginning of 2014, and just learned a lot. I would say Schlumberger Western GECO was a great place to start my career. They invested a lot in me, um, went through months of training and learning how to process seismic data, how to be a geophysicist, and, and had a good good start to my career there. I was at Schlumberger Western GECO for just about three years. Um, did a short stint at IBM, and then eventually found my way over uh, to NVIDIA, where I'm, I'm working on the energy team. I'm looking at both AI and high-performance computing within the energy sector. So it's been a, a long and winding road to NVIDIA, but I've had a lot of fun, and I've learned a lot along the way. Yeah, that's really that's really neat. And I, uh, I'm always appreciative of hearing how, uh, how, how folks are able to uh, in, in essence, cross-pollinate and, and utilize their background, wherever they're coming from, to make a difference, especially in the, the energy space. And so looking at, uh, at where you've come from and, of course, what you're, you're working on now, you, you mentioned a couple items. Um, and, and one of the things that I mentioned at the beginning, so we talked about high-performance computing, or HPC, as, uh, as, as it's known. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that this uh, in our conversation because I know that that's something that 
uh, of course, is a, a strong uh, area of focus for for Nvidia and certainly your yourself. Can so can you kind of help me understand? You know, if I'm uh, you know, in the oil and gas space, or, or even maybe I'll just broaden it in the energy space generally. What, how am I looking at high performance computing, and maybe even a step back? What, what is that, and 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 uh, and how does that work? Yeah, I think maybe I'll take a, an even further step back and just explain a little bit the GPU and how it differs from the CPU. So today's you know most powerful CPUs on the planet they typically have anywhere between uh, let's say 28 to 96 cores per CPU, right? So you think of that as a 28 to 96 lane highway for you to send your data through. You've got 28 lanes. You can you can send 28 data paths through that, 28 calculations at the same time. Our latest and greatest A100 has close to 8,000 cores. So whenever you move from having 28 lanes to uh, nearly 8,000 lanes. It just it, it completely opens up an entire new class of problems that you weren't able to solve before because you just didn't have enough data lanes. I mean, I'm sure most people uh, listening to this podcast are in the Houston area. We got I-10. That's got like 10 different lanes, right? And it seems like it's always backed up. Imagine I-10 with 8,000 lanes, right? And and when you think of it that way, I think um, you're able to kind of put in perspective. Uh, the power of the GPU and, and what it brings to the table in terms of computation. Um, so just a little bit about the yeah. GPU itself. And then if you think about it, you know, why, why did we develop this GPU? Why did NVIDIA develop it, the GPU in the early 90s? It was for video games, right? <laughs> and and if that parallel processing makes sense whenever you think about uh, a video game screen, right? Let's say you've got, you've got 100,000 pixels, right, on a screen or in the 90s, probably closer to like a thousand. You got a thousand mm -hmm. pixels and every pixel has a different color assigned to it. And in order to calculate that color, you got to run through, you know, a, a relatively simple matrix multiplication type scenario to, to figure out the color of that pixel. And then, you know, if you've got a screen that's updating 30 to 60 times a second, because you've got 30 to 60 frames per second, you've got to calculate those thousand different pixels every you know 30 times a second and each pixel calculation is going to be independent of the other pixels around it relatively independent so you've got to be able to do a thousand different simple math problems 30 times a second you know in parallel and that that was um kind of the impetus and what helped shape the architecture of the nvidia gpu so fast forward to the early 2000s and Jensen Wong, who's just a legendary founder and CEO of NVIDIA, began looking at that architecture and thinking, wow, you know, we've, we've got this great silicon that's able to do thousands of small math problems independently in parallel to figure out graphics, to, to compute graphics and pixel color and, and whatnot. And began asking, what would happen if we, if we opened that architecture up to scientists and researchers and allowed them to use it for compute instead of just graphics. And, and so when we were just looking at compute, the language was called Univi uh, Universal Device Architecture, UDA. And then in the early 2000s, when he started developing it, he added a C in front of it. That stands for compute. Now we've got the Compute Unified Device Architecture, CUDA. And that is the, the language, the foundational language um, 
that controls the GPU that all other software gets built on top of. It's that CUDA programming layer uh, that really drives the value of the performance of the GPU. Wow. Yeah, that's really it. And I really like the the concept of of being able to go from, like you said, what was once almost a, a, a purely uh, entertainment kind of consumer focused space and uh, with with some innovative approach now looking at it from a, a space that can be utilized for uh, many types of additional applications and in, including, uh, as, as we talked earlier, some uh, items such as like seismic processing. So, so let's talk about that. So we're, we're, we're talking about uh, using, uh, and I want to get it right, so CUDA, right? Mm -hmm, so, okay, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to get my, my, my <laughs> phrases here, right? So, but, but being able to approach the space using the, the, the CUDA language to now uh, solve and uh, help answer uh, the needs of, of those uh, who are looking at uh, seismic processing. So talk about how this solution came to be and, and maybe what, what it looks like, um, maybe kind of in, in a conventional approach to the space. Yeah, happy to do so. Um, all right, so CUDA was released in 2007, and that's also when NVIDIA started their enterprise practice. So, of course, you know, we've got the gaming side of the business. They were already talking to the national labs. We released CUDA in 2007, and we, we hire uh, a couple of really smart people, like a man named Paul Holzauer, who started the oil and gas practice at NVIDIA, Timer Kircher, um, and a couple other people who, who helped start oil and gas inside of NVIDIA. And they... And then at the same time, NVIDIA was developing their healthcare teams, their media entertainment teams, architectural engineering construction teams. And their goal was to take this GPU, take the CUDA programming language and spread it into the enterprise. And I got to say that NVIDIA, we owe a lot to the oil and gas industry because oil and gas was really one of the earliest adopters of GPU computing inside mm -hmm. of the enterprise and one of the largest adopters too. Uh, Paul Holzauer, who re retired at the beginning of this year, used to joke uh, back in 2007, you know, we, we, they would have the big, you know, enterprise business unit calls and healthcare would get up and say, oh yeah, you know, we sold a dozen GPUs to this company and a dozen here. And then finance would get up and said, oh yeah, you know, we, another couple dozen here. Maybe we've got a big deal coming down the line for 50 GPUs at this other bank. And then Paul Holzauer would stand up and be like, yeah, we're selling about 5,000 uh, to this seismic processor. This oil and gas <laughs> company is going to buy another 10,000. And then we've got, you know, another 50,000 GPUs yeah. in the pipeline. And it was, they, they used to, people would joke, they would hate going after Paul on the pipeline calls because he would just come up and he's talking about, you know, 10, $20 million deals. And, all of the other enterprises were, were struggling just to get any sort of revenue on small scale revenue. And here comes Paul and the oil and gas team uh, with these massive deals. Hmm. And I think it really put to rest some of the doubts that a couple people might have had early on um, in that, you know, is the enterprise ready for this, this new level of computing? Are, are enterprises ready for the accelerated computing future? And I think the oil and gas industry just adopting it so early on and in such a big way really put to rest a lot of those doubts. And well, so what do you, yeah, but what, what do you think uh, were some of the, the reasons? Because typically I would say I wouldn't necessarily put oil and gas uh, 
always at the forefront <laughs> of of adoption of of maybe new new concepts. I mean, many times they are. There are certain areas for sure, without mm-hmm. a doubt. But but broadly speaking, I, I I wouldn't come to mind. What what do you think was was uh, some of the reasoning there? Well, the early on, the one that was driving those early large purchases was all about seismic processing. So, um, you, you know, you can't just take any workload that runs on the CPU and run it on the GPU. You have to port that code over and you have to kind of redesign it to be able to take advantage of thousands of cores at once, as opposed to just, you know, 24 cores, right? And so we were going to all these different companies and we we're trying to figure out what the oil and gas workloads were and, and high performance computing, what required HPC and how do we get those codes moved over to the GPU? We had some really early success showing the power of GPU computing with the reverse time migration algorithm, RTM. It's a really powerful imaging technique, seismic imaging technique that is super useful for imaging you know, steeply dipping events. So, you know, we're in the, in the Gulf of Mexico. If you're a geologist, you know, there are these large salt diapers everywhere. And there's like this massive, uh, almost like an upside down bowl with like a string coming from the bottom. It, mm-hmm. it, it's hard to explain on a podcast, but the, the geologists who've studied Gulf of Mexico know what a salt diaper looks like. And that's got um, some structure in it that, that is steep, pretty steeply dipping. And so to image that is very difficult, especially once you get inside of the salt, you know, the, the actual acoustic waves just scatter everywhere. It's a very difficult problem. And there was this algorithm, uh, reverse time migration, that, you know, people had known about for a couple of years, but it was just computationally infeasible. I mean, it would take a supercomputer, a CPU-only supercomputer, six to eight months to run uh, one of these migrations and, you know, the operators just don't have that kind of time. They're trying to mm-hmm. drill well and, you know, return value to investors. And we showed that you know, using this parallel architecture, we can take a, a process like reverse time migration, move it over to the GPU, take advantage of those thousands of cores and really just start cranking out those, uh, those calculations and, and shrink the RTM timeline from, I don't know, what, eight, nine months down to a couple weeks. Mm. Wow. And uh, when the seismic processors saw that, boy, did they jump. They really saw the opportunity there. They started working with NVIDIA, with our developers. Of course, we came in, we showed them the ropes because programming uh, in CUDA is, is not the easiest. And if you've never done it, then you have no idea where to start. So we, we had some really smart computer scientists and geophysicists at NVIDIA who held the hands of the largest seismic processors out there, like Schlumberger Western GCO, CGG, Total, you know, just titans of industry, who ported over their code. It began with RTM, and then it moved on to a couple other migration algorithms that, that were also big and beefy, like the Kirchhoff depth migration and the Kirchhoff time migration. Now we're looking at futuristic or, or forward-looking, um, you know, the next gen of seismic imaging techniques like full waveform inversion that are just going to require a, another order of magnitude higher levels of compute than we have today and how do we get those ported um mm. so that those workloads are really what drove the adoption of accelerated computing inside the oil and gas industries seismic processing and then the other one is um reservoir simulation yeah yeah one, so yeah I, i'm curious just to know how that how that played a role yeah you know that that one is not as far along as seismic processing. You know, we, we had 
we had an advantage with seismic processing, especially with the reverse time migration. If you know about RTM, you know that's a, a shot by shot migration, right? So you do a seismic survey, you've got millions of shots, right? And each shot has to be migrated independently, right? So it's, it's embarrassingly parallel is what the industry calls it. So if you just throw one shot at all of these different GPUs and you can, you can start migrating, you know, hundreds of shots. And so that's why seismic processing was just a natural first step for GPU computing. Reservoir simulation is a much more difficult workload um, that in involves having you know, like a, a multi-grid solver and, and all these other really difficult math techniques that are way above my head. Um, but we did see some success early on with, with a couple of reservoir simulators. Uh, and then we've had a few who have adopted it, you know, in a really big way. Companies like Stone Ridge Technology, who have, without a doubt, just the most performant reservoir simulation platform out there. It's built entirely on the NVIDIA stack from the ground up. They rewrote the entire thing. We've had some other uh, reservoir simulation companies who have taken their existing code base. They have found the, the parts of the code that are the most computationally taxing, that are the real bottlenecks that, that take the most amount of time. And then they've, they've started moving over and, and porting certain, um, certain algorithms and routines inside of their code to get, take advantage of the GPU. And you know, they can get two to three X faster by, by moving portions of their code over. But companies like Stoner Technology that have adopted it from the ground up, we're, we're talking orders of magnitude, one or two orders of magnitude higher than CPU only, just because they've taken advantage of that parallel processing computing from the very beginning. Mm. So, so then I guess it, 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 the, the pictures at least clearly painted for me on the, the benefits of adopting a, a, a GPU approach versus a, a CPU only. So, and that, that totally makes, makes sense in, in my mind. So um, maybe I'll kind of throw another one at you. So one, one space I hear and know is continuing to develop is um, is the the area of of artificial intelligence or or AI? So uh, of course, a lot of uh, computing and computing needs there and processing uh, requirements. So so when you look at um, you know high performance computing or HPC, how do you see that in in uh, support of and and working with uh, kind of the the AI space? Yeah. So. I would say just as big as HPC is the field of artificial intelligence for NVIDIA, if not bigger. Um, and if you think about why NVIDIA is such an important player in, in the artificial intelligence industry, you have to think of the actual neural network architecture itself and how you train a neural network. If you've ever seen kind of a diagram of neural network, you know, you've got uh, all of these neurons, these little circles that are connected to other neurons because they're weights. Um, and, and some of these neural network architectures can get very big, very fast. And if you look under the hood of how the math that's required to train a neural network, it's actually relatively simple. It's, uh, it's uh, just a lot of linear algebra, a lot of matrix vector multiply, just all the way down. And if you've got these massive neural networks and these massive um, matrices that you need to multiply, if you've done matrix multiplication by hand, you know that there, there are basically two steps. You got to take one column, you multiply it by a row. And so you've got to multiply, uh, let's say 10 numbers all at once. And then you've got to add all of those together. And when you start scaling that out where, okay, now you got to multiply thousands of numbers at once and, and add them together. 
having the GPU with, with those thousands of cores is immensely valuable because each core can do its own multiplication by itself. So you can do 8,000 multiplication pro, uh, steps you know, at once using the GPU as opposed to the CPU, which could do what, 2896. Um, and so I would say Jensen, again, saw the potential of artificial intelligence to leverage the GPU very early. And I would say the big bang of artificial intelligence, what's commonly referred to as a big bang of AI, happened in 2012. It's a pretty crazy story. There's this contest called the ImageNet competition, right? And they have this, this database of about a million images of, of just common day objects, like stop sign, dog, cat, water bottle, and they were all labeled. And this contest had been going on for a couple of years and you had computer vision experts who had spent their entire careers hand coding the rules for a computer to recognize a stop sign, right? For example, so you, know, you define an octagon, you define the color red, you define all the letters, and then you got to... You got to look at the stop sign, you know, front on. What does the stop sign look like from mm -hmm. the side? What if it's dark? And so you can quickly see just, just identifying a simple stop sign. If you were to hand code all the rules, can get really difficult uh, really fast. And the ImageNet competition had a thousand different objects that, that you had to identify as part of it. And there were people, like I said, who spent their entire careers just developing these massive code banks for that. And then in, in 2012, you get this college kid named Alex Trzenski up in Canada, who he, I believe he was either mathematics or a computer science PhD student. And he looked at this ImageNet competition and he, he looked at the NVIDIA GPUs. We had already developed the CUDA programming language a few years before. And he thought, okay, what if instead of me trying to hand code all the rules for a computer to develop a stop sign, what if I just write this quick seven layer neural network architecture, I'll use CUDA to, to be the underlying compute engine to connect those, those seven different layers. I'll just feed that thing a thousand images of a stop sign and I'll have the computer tell me what a stop sign looks like. Mm. So, so he developed kind of the, the first um, neural network that ran on the NVIDIA GPU that had a, access to a, a large enough training set to train a computer vision algorithm. He went in there, blew the competition out of the water it opened up Pandora's box and showed everybody that, you know, artificial intelligence is, is now a viable solution. We've got the computing power necessary thanks to the NVIDIA GPU and the CUDA programming language. We've got large data sets now. And the math behind neural networks, that was solved in the 80s. It's all stochastic gradient descent and, and linear algebra, like I said. And so um, NVIDIA uh, saw what was happening there with and we started building libraries on, on top of it. So like I said, you know, the CUDA programming language is pretty difficult <laughs> to program in, but NVIDIA puts a lot of effort into software abstractions that build on top of that CUDA programming layer. So researchers can come in at the math libraries a layer where we've got uh, libraries like QDNN, Q, uh, CUDA Deep Neural Network, which makes it efficient to build and connect neurons together to build um, to build a, a neural network. We've got QFFT, if you're doing really fast Fourier transforms and you need to do those leveraging the GPU compute. We've got QRAND, which allows you to generate random numbers uh, quickly and efficiently, which is important for Monte Carlo simulations. QBLOS for linear algebra. So we've got the, the math library framework. And then we started helping um, uh, companies uh, or, or, or accelerating frameworks like TensorFlow and PyTorch, which 
you know, are nearly ubiquitous in the field of data science today. Everybody's using TensorFlow and PyTorch to train their deep learning models. And all of the TensorFlow and PyTorch, those sit on top of QDNN, which sits on top of CUDA, which runs in our NVIDIA GPU. So that is how NVIDIA has really cemented our position in the field of artificial intelligence. We've taken a ground up approach where we, we developed the silicon, we developed the low level CUDA language, and then we developed all of these software abstractions that allows the everyday data scientists to come in and they don't have to worry about CUDA memory management. They can just train their models using TensorFlow and all of that optimization happens under their head. Mm. The oil and gas industry is starting to look at artificial intelligence and they've been looking at it for a couple of years. I would say this is one area where they are behind some of the other verticals, especially uh, verticals like finance and healthcare that weren't as fast to adopt NVIDIA GPUs as oil and gas were, but who have adopted artificial intelligence much faster than, than oil and gas. And, and so we've got a whole bunch of different, um, different oil and gas companies using AI for, for different applications. So, you know, the, the easier lower late hanging fruit of AI, those are going to be the computer vision type application. So now instead of just having a camera that's got a motion sec, uh, sensor on a factory floor or uh, a rig floor, you know, you've got a camera that has computer vision models, so it can tell when somebody's wearing a hard hat or not. It can tell if somebody's in a red zone where we've got moving equipment where they shouldn't be there and send out alerts. It can do site security. It can do methane gas emissions. Um, it, it can look for defects in drill bits, things like that. And then on the seismic side, you know, it can look at a seismic stack and start doing some of the, the interpretation steps that um, – I used to require a geophysicist like myself to go in there and manually look at. Mm. And then you've got, of course, some of the, the other uh, more traditional machine learning applications that are, are starting to leverage deep learning as well um, to, for looking at like time series signals that are, that are coming in off the rig site for anomaly detection, predictive maintenance, those types of workloads. And then where I would say is the next chapter of artificial intelligence, which the oil and gas industry has been um, maybe intimidated by, uh, but it's the, the field of natural language processing and natural language understanding, which to put in perspective, natural language processing, NLP, is significantly more difficult than computer vision. Computer vision was the first chapter of AI. The next one is, is language models. And if you think about it, I mean, it's pretty easy to, to understand why. You can, ask, you can ask a neurosurgeon and a first grader to look at a picture and tell me, what do you see? And they can both say stop sign, right? Dog, cat, whatever. If you were to give a neurosurgeon a paragraph of text and a first grader a paragraph of text and say, what does this mean? What is, what is this paragraph telling me? You're going to get wildly different answers. My dog, for example. Under, has got a very good understanding of vision. If I'm watching TV and an elephant gets shown on the TV or another dog, she goes nuts because she can understand computer vision. Or, I mean, she can understand vision, but she can't understand language. If I explain to her what an elephant looks like, she would have no idea what I'm talking about. So language is a significantly more difficult um, undertaking, but, man, does it have some amazing applications. And we do have a couple couple partners who are developing NLP solutions for the oil and gas industry. One of my favorites is a great startup here in Houston called Mesh, uh, developed by some ex-Schlumberger folks who make it easy for an operator to leverage all of the data that they've got that's 
that they just don't have time for a human to go through and manually scan through and pick out the insights. You can say something like, oh, how much propent was used in well XYZ, right? And if you were to ask a human that, they'd say, okay, crap, I got to go dig through the drilling reports and figure this out and find it. Um, But using natural language understanding, you can train an algorithm that mines through all of the data that you have in different directories, different files, and hidden in Excel spreadsheets and PDFs, and not just look at it as an image, but be able to extract the text, be able to contextualize the text, understand it. It can then understand the question that's coming in, contextualize that question, look through the different data, and then be able to understand the answer that it's got to return to the user. It is a very difficult task, natural language understanding um, and natural language processing. But it, I think when the oil and gas industry does adopt it, it's going to be able to pay huge dividends. So I want to wrap up uh, talking. Uh, you 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 mentioned earlier uh, some of the activities, uh, for example, on on a rig floor, on a rig site. So I wanted to talk about uh, edge computing. So it sounds like there are a lot of uh, opportunities that um, uh, the the GPU can really excel in. So maybe some. Ed- I want to talk edge computing and maybe even. Uh, more discreetly, autonomous drilling and what that looks like when you're you're looking at uh, uh, some of these activities that uh, that uh, that uh, the GPU is able to to now help solve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, when it comes to edge computing, it's another very heavily invested in area here at Nvidia. So, of course, I spoke about the big data center GPUs that we have. Um, and those are great for training AI models, but uh, an AI model that's trained and that just sits in the data center and never gets deployed is is useless. It adds no value to to the to the oil and gas company. Where they derive value is whenever they take that model that was trained in the data center and deployed in production. And when we're talking about autonomous drilling, that requires the compute to be out there on the rig floor or at least very close to it, crunching numbers that are crunching data that's coming directly off of, off of the rig floor. And so we've got a, a, a class of edge GPUs called the Jetson GPUs at NVIDIA. They're, you know, low power GPUs that are, that can, you know, we're talking five to seven Watts for the smallest one. Um, and, and these edge GPUs are just great at crunching numbers, crunching time series data or video streams or you name it in real time at the edge and then running those data through machine learning, deep learning models uh, and spitting out the insights. So, you know, in the past, they're collecting tons of data on the rigs, right? Tons of vibration data, all sorts of other data. And, you know, currently what happens is they just, they send all of that data either back to their data center or up to the cloud, or they just throw it away and they don't even store it because they know that, that they don't have time to actually go and look at it. And what a much better way to do that is to have an edge GPU that's crunching all of the data as it's coming directly off the rig site, run it through the different inference models, do whatever calculations you need to generate the insights, and then just send the answers back to the data center or send the answers back to the cloud. You can think of it as as really just the, the most intelligent and efficient compression algorithm mm. uh, just by crunching that data right there at the edge. Um, and so we've got a couple good partners who are helping with that. We've got um, 
uh, like a partner called Sigma Stream that's developed some machine learning models that could be deployed on a Jetson. We've got a company called HiveCell that takes the, the Jetson, the actual hardware, puts it in a nice enclosure, uh, feeds it the power. The Ethernet has the entire management layer so that we can easily deploy models on top of it and get going from there. Mm. Um, we're, we're a little bit out of my area of expertise. I, sure. I'm more from the upstream, the geophysics side of things. But I remember I was at a conference, uh, you know, pre-COVID back when in-person conferences yeah. were still a thing. And I remember here, somebody told this joke that, you know, uh, in the future, the rig will only have two employees. It'll be one human and their dog. The human's job is to feed the dog. The dog's job is to make sure the human doesn't touch anything. Mm. <laughs> and, and obviously that's fishy, uh, a bit facetious. And, sure. you, you know, that something like that's not coming for you know, maybe another decade or so. But that is where the industry would like to head um, is is more of this bringing autonomy out there to the rig floor. And of course, there are still going to be humans in the loop. You need humans in the loop um, to ensure that uh, these models are being trained correctly, that they're being deployed correctly. Um, humans have common sense. AI models do not, <laughs> at least now. So you need to have a human in the loop to, to maintain and control it. But I would say bringing autonomy to the edge is, is I mean, bringing autonomy to the rig floor is another area of application and research that that can really have huge dividends for the industry going forward. Right. Yeah. No. And I mean, it, it, it sounds, I mean, just based on our earlier conversation, the, the time to go from concept to reality uh, continues to, to shorten. I mean, the, especially in the, the earlier days of going uh, from the idea of, of uh, a pro processor only to to now being able to utilize the the power GPU is uh, what once thought you know could have, could have conceivably been the idea of decades is is now just just a mere seems like months you know in, in mm -hmm. this point so um, no that's that's really good and I, I really appreciate the the insight and perspective uh, for for folks um, in that area so. If, um, if there's anybody that wants to maybe take a deeper dive or, or look at some of the, the uh, either case studies or, or info that, that you've shared here, where would the best place be to, uh, for them to, to take a read? So honestly, I'd say just reach out to me. I'll, I'll give you my contact info and you can put my email address out there. We do have an energy website uh, at nvidia.com, but uh, we are in the process of completely revamping it. So stay tuned. Maybe by the end of summer, we'll have uh, a much more usable website where people can go and read the case studies and watch some, some presentations and whatnot. But for right now, I'd say just reach out. And then just a little bit about NVIDIA's kind of business model and how we've become so successful. So, you know, everybody knows us as a hardware company. We sell hardware. That's how we recognize all of our revenue. But that's not where the secret sauce of NVIDIA is. The secret sauce, the reason why we are now a 300... Uh, I'm sorry, did I break up there? My, I had a call oh, come in. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's not the secret sauce of NVIDIA. The secret sauce of NVIDIA, the reason why we are now a what, $370 billion company is in the software that we create. Right. That is where we, we get the value. Um, and so I mentioned earlier, we've got the CUDA programming language, and I mentioned some of our math libraries and, and other applications that sit on top of it, like TensorFlow and PyTorch. And, um, that We actually have more software engineers than hardware engineers at NVIDIA. And their sole focus is building and optimizing 
that software stack and building new tools that make it easier for scientists and researchers to take advantage of the GPUs and do their life's work in their lifetime. At the end of the day, the GPU itself is just a means to an end. The only reason anybody would buy a GPU is to run the software that we help them create. So we put, I would say, 70%, 80% of my conversations with customers and partners is on the software side. We care about software, we care about performance, we care about optimization, and we love nothing more than de holding the hand of either a customer or a software provider, looking at, at an application that they've built, and they say, God, you know, this application right now, it's taken us 20 hours to run this model, and that's not acceptable. We need this to run in 30 minutes or less. And we say, all right, let's accelerate. We look at their software stack, we look at the different CPU libraries that they're using, we help them map it one-to-one, -one, like, oh, okay, you're using um, the Intel MKL library. Instead, you should use QSolver or QBLOSS or, you know, we've got QFFT, like I mentioned, but right. software, software is where our heart is. No, that's good. Man, that's, that's been, this has been really, uh, really insightful. I appreciate uh, all of the, the insights. So, so we've been uh, talking with Ray Gomez. Uh, he's the energy partner ecosystem manager with NVIDIA. And we have been talking about uh, high performance computing or HPC and uh, the evolution therein here in the oil and gas and energy space. So Ray, thanks for the perspective and the time today. Yeah, happy to do so. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Society of Petroleum Engineers Gulf Coast Section podcast. If you'd like to learn more about any of the upcoming events or resources available, or if you'd like to share your thoughts on this episode and have suggestions for future topics, feel free to contact us at spegcspodcast at spe.org.